Well, friends, we are going to be continuing through our uh, series of messages on Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. Last week, we examined what it really looks like to have a life given completely over to Christ, in which Paul uses himself as the example of serving to advance the gospel courageously and fearlessly, even at the sake of his own life. And he recognized that he was willing to do that because of how good the message was, of how important it was to get it out. His main objective was that Jesus would be preached. And it didn't matter if he did it or if somebody else did it. What mattered was serving Christ and bringing the gospel to those who had been lost. Paul told us specifically to live is Christ, to die is gain. Meaning that he faced, though, an un, a huge amount of uncertainty in his life. But for him, whether he lived or died, it was really about the same. Because in either case, Christ would be gained. That was his perspective on what it meant to live for Christ, somebody who was all in. And of course, that's a lot to chew on, isn't it? It's a lot to ponder on. He is addressing something there that a lot of us struggle with about going all in for Jesus. Some don't think it's worth it, or some don't understand the ramifications of such a decision. Others believe that living for ourselves is better than living for Christ, and we struggle with ourselves, and we struggle with our culture, and we sometimes even struggle with the gospel. But Paul is intending to bring us back to the core of what we're to be about. As we will see in today's passage, Paul will continue to make a case for the life of believers, for the community of believers that are completely dedicated to Christ, of why it's worth it, of why it's important, of why it matters, and how we can follow. And so we now turn to our reading for this morning from the epistle to the church in Philippi. I invite you, if you are willing and able, to stand with me in body or spirit, and together let's read aloud this word given to us today. Starting in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, and going all the way to chapter 2, verse 4. Together, let us now encounter God's word. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for this wonderful day of worship, the opportunity to come and to be gathered as your people, and now the great joy of encountering your word. We thank you, God, for gathering us, and we pray for your help today as we come to this interpretation, a deeper understanding. Help me, Lord, to speak your truth. Help us to listen with ears and hearts and minds that are open to your movement and to your wisdom, and that together we may journey as your disciples. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. So right off the bat, we have something here which is really amazing to think about, in which Paul says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then Paul goes on to list what that conduct looks like, standing firm in the spirit, contending as one body for the faith, not being frightened by those who oppose you. Have you ever thought about that before in your own life? To live your life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel? So that if someone else hears about your life, that they're encouraged by how you stand, by how you live, by how you conduct yourself. Have you ever thought about your faith like that? To live in such a way that your life gives testimony to the fact that you've been saved, that Jesus has set you free, that you have stood firm, that you have been united with other believers. I think about all the people that Jesus healed all throughout his ministry, all the great powerful stories that we've heard about the blind or the deaf or the lepers or the lame, the people that Jesus lifted out of misery. And after Jesus healed them, do you think that they just continued with their old lives? Do you think that the person who was healed at the pool of Shalom, that they just continued to lay there or did their life changed. What about the man who was born blind that we learn about in the Gospel of Matthew? After he was able to see, do you think he went around like he was still blind? Or did his life change because of his encounter with Christ? Can't we imagine that for them to live in a manner worthy of the Gospel would be for them, for their whole lives, to radiate that encounter with Jesus, the way that he healed them, that their whole lives were changed because of them, and then they would live that out? Paul is pointing out the obvious here, but it's also obvious that this is something that we forget from time to time, that our behavior as representatives of God's kingdom do matter. Because what we can see and what we use to make decisions about one another, that's how we are meant to live. Behavior matters because if we don't come together, if we aren't unified, if we don't stand firm, if we give in to fear, then we're already sunk. Somehow, being a follower of Jesus is not meant only to affect what we believe, but how we act. And sometimes this means that we have to act that is contrary in a way to our human nature, because to be human is to be selfish. Human nature is centered first on how we might be affected by something, whether it's positive or negative. But our new Christ-centered nature is meant to be completely different, in which we aren't so much concerned about ourselves, but we are concerned about others first. As followers of Jesus, therefore, our values, the things we live by, they're meant to be like him. 
because our primary obligation is to him because of what he represents, this new life, this transformation, this freedom from all these things that take us down. This means that he takes the lead and we follow him all through the ups and downs, through the hills and the valleys so that we can experience the fullness of life that he alone can offer. And by that fullness of life, it's the good and the bad that God is with us in both of those things. Now, grace, this word grace, is something that we regularly talk about. It's really one of the core tenets of Christianity. It's one of the things that sets our faith apart from really any other faith, this concept of grace, this free gift. But sometimes living that out in reality, what does it mean to live grace out? Sometimes we have difficulty expressing that. But in this passage, Paul is saying something deep about grace. He says that on behalf of Christ, we have been granted the ability to believe in him as well as to suffer for him. Now, we might say that's kind of weird. (laughs) What is Paul talking about here? Well, this word translated in English as granted comes from the Greek word for grace, signifying really something extraordinary, that it is the gracious gift of Christ that we've been given not only belief, but also suffering, the fullness of life, not just one part or the other, but both together fitted is grace. And I think we understand maybe the idea that belief is a great gift of grace, Belief is powerful. Belief helps us to love and to forgive and rejoice. But we're meant to understand that grace, living as people in God's kingdom, is so much more. Suffering is also a gift of grace. And if that's true, it tells us that suffering that we encounter in this world is not just some random thing that happens to us. It's not just something that we just have to uh, go through. We didn't get the bad lottery. Suffering is not a sign that we've sinned or that we've done something wrong. Suffering isn't just about pain or hurting. It's about something greater because we all have to endure it. We all go through moments of suffering, don't we? Some more than others. We all go through moments of heartache and pain. And if God's grace isn't a part of that, then only half of the picture is something we have. Now, it's likely that few of us would choose to suffer or go through hard times. But it's also likely that we recognize that our closest times to God, the times that our faith has grown the most, the times that grace has become most evident, has been in the darkness, in the valleys, in the pain, in the heartache, in the suffering. I think back on my own life, times when I was really hurting, when I remember that time of pain, I don't just think of that pain, I also think of God. I think about how near God was, of how real grace was, how good God was in those times. Paul's saying here that as we seek to live this life of faith, this life in which we stand firm for the gospel, that even suffering has been granted to us because it means that We do not suffer alone. And that purpose can be found because God's grace is there. But now here's this big idea. So let's listen up together. Paul says that if if Jesus, therefore, as we think about grace, what's been given to us as we seek to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, if Jesus has made any difference in our lives at all, 
if his presence has helped us even once, if we have been encouraged, if we have been led through the darkest times, if we have been filled with his love, if we have been given the the ability and capacity beyond ourselves to be more compassionate, more merciful, if being a follower of Christ has led us to this church, if we are in partnership with God, then we are called to reflect on lives that have the same mindset together, in which we have one love, one spirit, one purpose. Now, this might sound like a lot to take in, but it's absolutely necessary if we hope to be a kind of people that are healthy and strong and faithful, to be the kind of Christ followers that we all know we can be. And it might seem impossible, but the truth is we see this in the world all around us. Groups of people that come together with the same goal and the same mind, bringing unique gifts together that serve the greater purpose. What are some examples? Think about an orchestra. Many instruments, one sheet of music. Think about a marching band. Many people on a field, but all marching in the same direction. Think about a choir. Many voices, one song. Think about a medical team. Many talents, one patient. Think about a sports team. Many teammates, one goal. We understand what Paul's talking about here on a fundamental level. He's trying to turn it into theology, to think about our Christ-centered lives in that same way. Because coming together in unity is good. Celebrating diversity, that's wonderful. But unity without diversity, that's a cult. And diversity without unity is chaos. We need both. Imagine an orchestra that is made up entirely of drums. Or horns. That'd be interesting. (laughs) But the fullness of music, it would be missing, wouldn't it be? It'd be monotonous. It'd be one tone. Or imagine if an orchestra had every single instrument and everyone could play them perfectly, but everyone was playing a different piece of music. How would that sound? Would it be nice? No, it would be terrible. Because it doesn't matter how good you are if you're not all pulling together as a team. Or imagine if a baseball team wanted to see how many home runs they could hit. How well would they play? Or if a medical team all tried to see how fast they could clock out at the end of their shift, would they be good serving their patient? Or if a choir would made up of nothing but basses? Maybe Bob and I, we can dream of that, but no. It wouldn't be good, would it? No, it wouldn't sound good. What if a choir came together and Tim had us all sing a different song? How would that work out? We can see how silly that would be. But do we see the same thing is true when it comes to our faith, the way we are to live it out? We are to strive together for that same goal, not out of selfishness or vanity, but in humility. We are to be unified under the same purpose, because if we do not, then we're fractured and we make no difference at all. And then the sound we make is just chaos. It's just gibberish. And no one wants that. Imagine a church that is full of wonderfully talented people, but no one can agree on what to do. Or imagine a church full of people that are just in it for themselves. What kind of church is that? There have been times where I thought I had all the right answers, and that if people could just see it my way, that everything would be okay. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) 
I remember early on as a pastor, the church I was serving at made a decision that I didn't agree with. There was another church that was nearby, much smaller than ours, who really needed pastoral help. And so the session of our church decided to come alongside this other church as kind of a sister church. But I didn't like it. I didn't like going over there. I voiced my opinion about it even after the session of both churches agreed that it was a good thing for both. But because I didn't like it, I kind of caused a little bit of a fuss. I broke unity because I was being selfish. I was wrong about that. And not only that, I caused a fracture between myself and others in the church who thought it was a good idea, who were going on with leadership, who were seeking to be unified, simply because I didn't want to admit that I was wrong. I couldn't see it. I didn't want to believe it. I was stubborn. I wanted to go my own way. I had my own ambition. I was certainly not humble in that moment. And as I have an opportunity these years later to reflect upon that moment, I recognize that I was not striving towards the same goal as everyone else. Has this ever happened to you? Where you stood in the way of unity or a decision that was made just because you didn't agree with it? Now, maybe you had a good reason for it. Maybe it was important that you took a stand, but maybe it was also because you didn't get your own way. And what's more important, to get your way or for us to seek the common ground together? That's, that's where it's tough, isn't it? Paul says that we're not only to look for our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Not for rivalry, but for the sake of unity. Not in vanity, but for the sake of love. So it's not a matter of thinking the same way as everyone else. We are to maintain our diversity. But we are to realize that what others want has great value especially if it's maybe a little bit different than what we want. We are to consider the needs of others, being open to the possibility that their needs might supersede our own. And then we have a decision to make, don't we? At the end of our mission statement that we say every single Sunday at the end of worship, we say that our mission is among many things, but one of them is to love and serve our neighbor. And that's a really good thing, isn't it? But in order to do this, we have to set aside our desire for vanity and for rivalry, we have to set aside our desire to build our church. We have to set aside our desire to get up on other people because there's something greater than all those things. There's something greater, and that is serving God's kingdom. That's why we are called to love and serve our neighbor. But what happens when we get caught up in rivalry? What, get, what happens when we get caught up in selfish ambition or vanity? Well, that's when things begin to go sideways. Maybe you read this story or heard about it, but just this past week, I heard about a fan at a football game in the NFL that died, a fan that died, because he was struck and hit by a fan of an opposing team in the stands during the game. Violence at football games this year, at all levels, peewee league, middle school, high school, college, NFL, violence in the stands is at an all-time high, and it's alarming. Think about it for a moment. How important is rivalry to us, to the point of death? How much is our own selfish ambition worth? What do we lose? Reading that story this week brought me back to an incident that happened when Tina and I were in seminary in Texas. Now, the big football rivalry is between, in Texas is between the University of Texas in Austin and Texas A&M. 
And every year before that big game, before they face each other, the Texas A&M Aggies would build this gigantic bonfire. Not just this little baby bonfire. I'm talking a bonfire that would be stories and stories high that would use full trees from a forest to build this bonfire. It was spectacular. They would then burn that during this pep rally on the Friday before the game, all the while kind of disparaging UT, of course. And during the UT pep rally, they would disparage A&M, and it was kind of nasty. It was a little out of control until one year, one of the years that Tina and I were there. That year, the bonfire collapsed while they were building it, killing several students. Yes, it was terrible. It was solemn. And that year, there were no pep rallies. That year, people didn't say terrible things about the other school. Instead, what happened, there were candle vigils. There were candlelight memorials all throughout the state. That rivalry, that selfish ambition, that year, and for many years following, took a back seat to something far more important, the unity of humanity in the face of tragedy. And sometimes it takes tragedy to remind us of how important it is for us to strive towards that same goal. But when we look to our own interests, when we're driven by selfish motives, when we pursue nothing but our own vanity, our own empty glory, then we can never be unified. And we will always be split because then the same goal is not the same goal. Can we see that we can't just do what we want and neglect others? Can we see that if we just live for ourselves, then everything we say about Jesus, about our faith, about what we say we believe, that's really just an illusion? Because as we come to this word today, it tells us we can't live like that. And so, friends, let's not forget, if at any point in time, if any moment in the past or the present, we can point to how Jesus has helped us, then we owe it to him to live like it. Because otherwise, what's the point? What's the point of being in a church when we aren't striving towards the same goal or living out the same mission? That what, what makes us unique and attractive and faithful and loving and compassionate is being unified together. That is attractive, friends. That's what the world needs, to see a body of people that are all striving towards the same goal with a higher purpose. And we do here have one purpose, don't we? And so let us continue to stand firm together. Let us continue to come together in faith. I love that we have so many unique talents here. And I love that we aren't trying to just gain glory for ourselves, that we don't play king in the mountain here, that we aren't trying to just do what we want. I'm encouraged that in our uniqueness, we do strive together. And so let us continue to do that. Let's remember the words of Paul bringing us together that we may run this race of faith together in unity because of what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Lord, we give you great thanks for your love, your grace, for the way that you give us faith as well as suffering, for all the things that you have done in our life, the encouragement, the way that you've come alongside, the joy how you provide us unity in the spirit that you help us to stand firm. Help us, Lord, to hear these words today and to seek to live them out, 
to give glory to you and to your kingdom. We thank you, God, for your many blessings, and we pray this in your name. Amen.